Hard not to be excited when you start with that. That was recorded by Stephen Ivany. Thank you, Stephen, for that awesome horn intro, which is going to be absolutely perfect for today because my guest is Mark Williams. And as you'll hear, Mark trained at school with the horn and it's a whole thing and it's just perfect. But we'll get there. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Welcome to episode two of the Fletchcast. I'm your host, Alex Fletcher. Thank you so much for being here. Um, So first of all, a couple of housekeeping notes. Um, I didn't mention in episode one, which if you haven't listened to it, please go back and do. It's with Michael Solomon and it's a great episode. But I did not mention that the theme song that you heard at the beginning of episode one was recorded and composed by my wife, Joelle Harvey, the multi-talented Joelle Harvey, um, wrote the music for that Um, and performed it, uh, and also played the piano. She did the whole shebang. Uh, I did write the lyrics for it, a small but consequential piece. So as time goes on, hopefully we'll have a few different fun covers of Joelle's theme song, uh, starting with that one today from Steven. Um, other housekeeping notes. I'm learning how to do this as I go. Um, and if you know me, you know that I talk very loudly and often very emphatically, Um, And as a result, the first episode contains what we might call plosives. Um, And if you don't know what that is because you don't do anything with podcasting, um, it's when your microphone picks up the bursts of air that come from speaking very emphatically. So a few issues with plosives in the first episode, and I apologize for that. I do now have a filter for my mic, which hopefully will contain a little bit of my raw power. Um, And I'll do the best I can. (laughs) So today we're talking to Mark Williams. I think you guys are going to love this conversation. Mark is such a fascinating guy. He's such an accomplished guy. Um, I really loved speaking with him. So Mark is the chief artistic officer of the Cleveland Orchestra. He came to the Cleveland Orchestra as the director of artistic planning. Um, And before that, he was the artistic administrator at the San Francisco Symphony Um, And prior to that, he was an artist manager at IMG Artists in New York. As you'll hear, um, I've been very boring with my mixology during the pandemic. Uh, It seems to be something that I've kind of run out of bandwidth for with everything else going on. Uh, And so I was listening back to the interview thinking, man, I really have been very uh, uncreative when it comes to mixology. But I have picked up a different um, hobby, which has been the post-dinner bowl of cereal. Um, I abandoned that a long time ago, and I've picked it up with vigor during the pandemic, and I'm really loving it. I'm trying a new box of cereal every week, kind of going back to my childhood and sampling through. Um, My lifetime one seed is Cracklin Oat Bran. However, Cracklin Oat Bran is outrageously expensive, um, especially for how small a box it is. So on principle, I generally don't buy Cracklin Oat Bran. Um, But that is my one seed. I would say that my most frequent buy is Cinnamon Toast Crunch, CTC, which is just a fantastic cereal. Um, And I also really love Raisin Bran, um, where you feel like you're being a little bit healthy. Um, But I think if you knew how much 
sugar was in that. I mean, you probably do while you're eating it. It's still delicious. So, um, so Raisin Bran, also a great option. What cereals am I sleeping on, guys? Let me know. This is really important to me. In any case, let's get to today's interview with Mark Williams. everybody my guest today is the ultra suave the debonair mark williams mark thank you for joining me on the fletch cast thank you for having me it's great to be here now i'm already immediately intimidated because mark is a pro he's got a fantastic mic and he is audio ready so um i'm intimidated in my role as the host and um excited for us to chat um, Mark, so you and I met when you were at the San Francisco Symphony, but let's go back before that. Where were you born? Where did you grow up? Um, tell me about that. I was born uh, and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, I can't say the most interesting place in the world, but I suppose there's also worse places. To, we all have to be from somewhere. So I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio, and I uh, obviously... I shouldn't say obviously. I studied music. There are people in this business who who didn't, but I studied music. I was a, a French horn player, and uh, I studied with um, members of the Cleveland Orchestra and the Cleveland Institute of Music. And then I moved to New York to find fame and fortune, uh, studying with members of the Met, and then you know eventually deciding, you know, I don't, I don't actually think I want to be a performer. Uh, that's when I discovered the music business, as it were, and uh, you know the rest is history. I guess I'm glad that you that you brought that up. That some people studied music and some people didn't, because um, from listening to you on other things, I know that you studied the clarinet before the horn, correct? Or yes. played the clarinet, which I, I yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I played it. Studied makes it sound uh, way. <laughs> I studied the horn. I played the clarinet. <laughs> okay, I I also played the clarinet in like fourth or fifth grade, and I would I would lie on my practice paper um, about how much I was practicing and bring it into my teacher, and then she would say, um, "There's no way that you are practicing this amount, um, you know, based on how you're playing." I mean, I'm sure she said the nice version of that to a fourth grader, um, and then you have I a sinister. Your mind yeah and then i you were already lying about practicing yeah and not only that but then when she called me on it i like quit in very dramatic fashion and said i'm not playing the clarinet anymore i'm out um so it sounds like our instrumental education was like basically the same i mean you got multiple degrees and considered a career in it and i cheated on my practice paper i mean that's basically the same right yeah but look look we ended up in the same place so clearly uh you know your path was the right one no, you know, I, I i started playing an instrument because uh i will never forget it i was in fourth grade and uh you know i got this like golden rod mimeograph sheet. remember mimeographs so i got oh, this yeah. golden rod mimeograph sheet about um you know about playing an instrument and uh, i wanted to the clarinet and my parents wanted me to play the saxophone and i hate the saxophone and um, and I was so glad that, you know, and they kind of twisted my arm, I'll, I'll be frank. And so I took the form back and I remember the teacher telling me, you know, I, I'm sorry, but at fourth grade, they don't let you play the saxophone. But if you play the clarinet, when you're older, you can play the saxophone. And I was like, yes, I was so happy. <laughs> but, you know, this was, this was a public school and, um, you know, the, the long-term effect of all of that has been my, um, great belief that, you know, music education is a right. And, um, just my 
I'm, I'm so deeply grateful that, uh, that, you know, back in the, I guess that would have been the eighties, late eighties, early nineties that, you know, that, that I had that opportunity because, uh, that little mimeographed sheet probably changed the course of my life. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel the same way. I mean, I, I can still remember my, you know, the mini courses we did on composers in second grade and, and, you know, just having that foundation laid, but that was one of the things that I wanted to ask you was about, um, how your parents felt about your interest in music. I mean, it sounds like they encouraged it and they even had strong feelings on what you should be playing. Yeah, they, well, I, I, th I think it, it sort of happened in two parts, right? Um, fourth grade, you know, no one's choosing a career. So, you know, <laughs> my parents, you know, we never listened to classical music in my house. They enjoyed music. I heard a lot of reggae. I heard a lot of soul. My grandmother listened to mostly religious music, so I heard a lot of gospel. So music mm -hmm. was very much a part, a part of my life. But of course, I didn't make music until I played the clarinet. So I think in their heads, there was a sort of if you're going to play an instrument, it obviously needs to be the saxophone. Like it's got to have some soul to it. But that, for whatever reason, I wasn't attracted to it. And then. And so I was sort of casual. I would say I was casually involved with music until about the ninth or 10th grade when uh, I had, having long left clarinet and not studying music at all, I started studying again. I joined the band and um, I, I was playing the French horn and I loved it. And at this point, uh, things got a little bit tricky because I got this crazy notion that maybe I'd want to become a musician. And that was very different from the background that I had been on, you know, before that, which was more science-based or, you know, I was into languages and all these things. And my parents were not happy about this. Mm. And I think part of it is that, you know, they had this kid who, uh, who obviously was driven and wanted to achieve and I think they looked at the at a career in music, especially a career in classical music with great skepticism because they didn't know anything about it. Right. And they didn't have the resources to find out what that life could look like. So <laughs> being very plucky, uh, I called the Cincinnati Symphony one day. You know, I got off the white pages and I looked them up and I called up the Cincinnati Symphony. And I guess they must have, you know, transferred me to someone in the education department. And I just asked questions like, well, I play the horn and I'm, you know, I, I, well, what, what could my career path be? And they told me, you know, you, you should probably go to a music school and you'll get a degree and then you can take auditions. And, and I remember telling my parents that, and I think somehow it soothed, soothed them to know that there was a path, that it wasn't just like, you know, I mean, of course, we know now it's very fraught and, you know, you need a, a lot of talent and opportunity and luck and this and that and the other. But somehow that that assuaged their fears. Well, I love that you did the groundwork and you checked into it and, and tried to give them some real context for it. So so after that, when you wanted to go to conservatory, they were supportive of it? Yes, they were. I mean, they well, first of all, they drew a red line, which was uh, you will not go to New York City. So I was not allowed to audition for Juilliard or any of the New York schools. And I, I, I hated them for that. Um, and in the end, it was the very best thing that ever happened to me because I was, um, I went to college at 17 and I was really naive and, and pretty sheltered. And I, I think I probably would have gotten eaten alive in New York. I just, I just think it would have, 
That was that was not the right time. So being able to go to a great school that was also in a city that was more maybe just a little bit more manageable for me at that time was 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 great. And I think the whole process of auditioning for schools was proof to them that I that I had it. I, I think secretly they thought, you know, if I if I go and audition for all of these music schools and I don't get into any of them, well, that that's a sign. And, you know, maybe he'll just go study science go study science somewhere. Uh, but, you know, I got into schools and and so they were they were pretty impressed. Yeah. Oh, I bet. And so you go to the Cleveland Institute and what do you remember about your time there? What really stands out to you? It was it was such a an education and a revelation. You know, I came to music very, very late. And I think what a lot of a lot of people don't really focus on the amount of time and effort and money it takes to create a classical instrumentalist. And so suddenly, you know, I came from a kind of lower middle class background. Neither of my parents had gone to college before. And suddenly I'm this black kid at a major conservatory and I had been studying horn for privately for like a year and a half before I got into conservatory. So clearly I had a lot of natural talent, but you, you, you know, of course you certainly get to a point where then it's just, you know, it's hard work. And I was around kids who had gone to Interlochen during the summer and like they'd been to all the right camps and they knew everything. There was just a level of knowing and sophistication and, and frankly, professionality that they all had that I didn't. Um, I really didn't know very much about music theory. I knew very little about music history. And it, it was it was being thrown into the deep end, to be perfectly honest with you. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I did it. I managed. But um, it, it was hard. <laughs> it was very, very hard. I mean, I will never forget the first orchestra rehearsal. And I had been in the youth orchestra in Cincinnati, which, um, you know, was good. I mean, it was good. But I remember my first re- orchestra rehearsal at um, at Cleveland. And you have to understand that all of the students are in the orchestra. So whether you're a freshman or you are a doctoral student, you're in the same orchestras. And I will never forget the very first piece we played was uh, Nielsen Overture to Mascarada. And I was playing the fourth horn part, which probably isn't that difficult, but you know, the rehearsal started and the conductor said, okay, great. You know, welcome back. It's great to see you all. Welcome new people. So let's just, you know, let's just read this down. And this piece just takes off like a bat out of hell. And I, I mean, it was like, I couldn't even count that fast. And I remember going back to my dorm room and I just cried and I called my parents. I was like, I can't do this. Like I am in over my head. These people are way better than me. I have no idea how they let me into this school. And, you know, again, it's, it's, it was, is one of those moments where, you know, you just, you have to, you have to sink or swim. And, and it was, um, you know, I got it out of my system and the next day I went back and every day it got a little bit better and I worked a little bit harder and, um, yeah, it was, it was a really great lesson for, (laughs) for all the things that would come later in life. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, something that I've always thought about you is that you're someone who is always, um, and I feel this way about myself too, always wanting to move forward, always wanting to learn, um, not easily defeated. Is that something that you had to develop or do you feel like that was always just part of who you, who you are and who you've been? 
that's a hard question to answer. I don't, I, I don't know if I actually have the perspective to answer that. Um, you know, I, I, I think of people who are very strong and I, I, I probably wouldn't put myself in that, uh, in that group, but I guess, you know, I, I guess there's a certain amount of resiliency that just gets built in when you are a person who is carving a different path. So I've always been, I was one of very few black students at, at conservatory. I was one of very, you know, I, later I went on to work in arts management. I was one of very few, if any, black artist managers at that time. Then I started working for orchestras and, the sa and you know, the same thing has happened. And so I suppose that um, in any instance, if you are the other, you know, based on you know, your race or your gender or your sexual orientation or, or whatever, any, any number of groups, you do have to develop a certain resilience to just keep going. Um, so I, yeah, so I suppose I'm reasonably reasonably resilient and I hate losing. So <laughs> I just keep going. <laughs> I'm like an ocean liner. <laughs> it's been said, and I think you'd agree that, um, you know, you're a unicorn in several ways. And this is one of the ways that you're a unicorn is that um, when you worked in, in artist management and when you've, and, and in your career in orchestra management, you have been a minority. Um, and I'm curious, from what I understand from hearing you in other interviews, um, that was brought up with you right from your first interviews, your first um, entree into the classical music business. And so, um, you know, that, that was something that was brought to the forefront right away. Um, and you, you say that, you know, it did make you resilient. Um, but having that awareness and having that brought to you right from the beginning, I mean, how has that informed your career in classical music and and just kind of the way that you've thought of it. Well, I in a way I think I've I think I've gone a fairly conventional path. Like I don't, I don't think there's anything particularly you know unique about my career, right? I haven't um you know, I was a kid who was interested in classical music. I went to a school to study classical music and I've worked in classical music. Like, where's the story, right? Um, I, I think I have always had a certain awareness and it's been, you know, it's been mixed in with all of these different things. I'll give you an example. When I lived in New York, I, I started working in, in arts management when I was 23 years old. So I was this 23-year-old, tall, skinny, you know, fairly attractive uh, gay black kid. And I would walk into meetings or walk into places and, and I would get this look and it was like, wait, wh what is it? Is it because I'm black? Is it because I'm young? Is it because I'm, you know, because I'm gay? Like, I don't know. Um, and, and I certainly had to, had to deal with sort of, you know, discrimination or it's inappropriate behavior from some people. But, but on the, on the whole, I think, um, again, I don't think that's, that's unique in a way. Um, you know, everyone is always testing boundaries, right? Um, 
I think to a certain extent, if you are an outsider or you are the other, and you're 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 stepping into a field or an industry where you know where you are that that other, you spend a lot of time um, assimilating and trying to be like everybody else, right? Because that I guess that's the road to acceptance, and then you reach a certain point, and maybe it's age, or maybe it's stature, or maybe it's just power, where you realize, oh, I don't have to actually be like everyone else. Um. And in fact, I'm better if I'm not like everyone else. And then you realize that you have a voice and you have a seat at the table and you can do, and, and, and then you have a responsibility to use that, that voice and that, and that seat at the table and that power. And I think that's, I, I think that's the phase of my career, the phase of my life that I'm, that I'm entering. Yeah, absolutely. And I I feel like I've experienced that in my career as well, where you spend a certain amount of time trying to establish yourself and trying to be viewed legitimately. And then you feel like you have done those things and you do have um, an ability to speak out. And so then you want to do that. Um, So now being in that phase in your career and talking about Um, you know, yes, it's been uh, somewhat conventional, but you have often been kind of the other. Um, And now being in this place in your career with this, um, with this position of legitimacy, and, and, you know, being an accomplished professional, professional, how do you find yourself wanting to speak out? I want to speak out in ways that ultimately, I think will help other people. So, you know, I, I work in an orchestra and in the context of that orchestra, you know, working um, uh, for ways to make sure that, you know, through our education and our community programs, we're, we're reaching people and touching their lives a- in meaningful ways, uh, making sure or working toward, uh, you know, as a, as a member of the senior team in this institution that, you know, we enact policies and procedures and programs that help us uh, be more welcoming and open and, and, and open and uh, create opportunities for more diverse uh, groups of people to work with us and come to our concerts. Um, and, you know, for, for the community to feel that we as an institution are embracing them because, of course, they writ large have embraced us. That's why we're still here. Um, and I think as an, as an artist and as an artist pr- a programmer, working to make sure that you know, we present as wide a swath of good music as possible and that it's played by a diverse group of people. And all of that is incredibly complicated. <laughs> it's complicated. It's loaded. You know, it's loaded in India, in any industry. Now, think about an industry that's hundreds of years old and originated in Europe and was mostly for rich white people. It, it, it's it's not easy, and there are there are very few, in, in my view, and some some people would would disagree, and I'd love to hear it. But you know, in my view, it's it's hardly it's never an easy conversation in classical music, or or I think I think any in in many fine arts. Right. I mean, and even yeah. the terms are so loaded, like fine arts. You know, well, what does that mean? Uh, whose art is fine, and who decides? who decides what it is. I was talking the other day about something and I said, well, you know, I mean, I'm referring to art music and it was like, Ooh, it just felt really dirty. It's like, because someone's decided that this music that we create is art 
but that music isn't. And I'm sorry, I listen to Mahalia Jackson. That is art. The beauty of that instrument, the timing, all these things. So, so we just have to with with so many of these things, we just need to kind of step back and and I don't know, try to think about think about it in its most basic forms. Yeah, and I think and I I think we're doing it. I think like you said, it takes time. It's complex. Um, but I think we are doing it. And I, I see this, you know, this real commitment to reach back to our communities where our organizations are centered and to really make sure that we're listening to them and that we're, we are their organization um, and trying to move it off of a pedestal. Um, because certainly, I mean, when I came to love opera, it wasn't because I thought it was any kind of elite um, form in any way. It was because I loved the music and I thought um, it was beautiful. And I thought that everything that is represented in opera was this incredible art form. Mm-hmm. Um, so I said that you're a unicorn in a couple of different ways. Another way that you're a unicorn is that when you were an artist manager, you worked with with classical singers, with vocalists, um, in addition to with conductors and maybe instrumentalists. I don't know. You can correct me. Um, which is unusual. People that I've encountered either work on the vocal side or they work on the orchestra side, and it's rare that they would work in both and have a command in both. But you are one of those people, and I've always found that fascinating. So can you talk to me a little bit about about that work and about how you came to be one of those people that can straddle both and has straddled both? Yeah, it- it, it, I have to say it's totally happenstance. So um, I, I adore opera. And I remember, I remember the day I fell in love with opera. I would have been like, I don't know, maybe 13. And I was sitting at home channel surfing and I um, ended up on, you know, PBS. And there was a live from Lincoln Center. I didn't know what Lincoln Center was, okay, <laughs> what a Lincoln Center was, okay? But I know now there was a live from Lincoln Center, and uh, or maybe it was a, a rebroadcast, but nevertheless, it was La Boheme with Teresa Stratus and Jose Carreras. And I guess I came in around Act Two, and I was totally riveted like the the discovery of such an art form of such a way to tell stories was just beyond my imagination and of course i had no um I, you know no idea what an opera was really um and so you know for no it was sorry it wasn't Boheme. it was traviata it was traviata and or was it yes it was traviata and I remember we get to act three and of course, you know, she's dying and it's very sad. And then you hear the love music from act two and um, that's all great. And Alfredo comes back and they reunite. And, you know, I didn't even know the trope of everyone dies in the end of an opera. And so I was so excited. And then of course she takes a turn for the worse and she dies. And I was just, I was just devastated. And that started me on this path. And, you know, I'm dating myself here a little bit, but, you know, I I got a membership to like BMG CD of the month. And I started getting all these opera compilation CDs. And and another sort of turning point was, you know, opera's greatest moments. And, you know, it's all the stuff that you would imagine. But on there was uh, 
was a person called Jesse Norman singing Einsamen Trubentagen Tagen from Lohengrin. And I remember opening the book and seeing this beautiful woman with this beautiful black face looking back at me. And something clicked in my head like, oh, wait, if she could do this, maybe I could. I mean, I was never a singer, but but if she could, if she could make something of herself in this business, maybe I could. You know, Jesse Norman, immensely talented, me, mere mortal, but nevertheless. <laughs> <laughs> so of course I went to I went to to school for for French horn, as you know, and um and there I I just got to know all the singers and I hung out with the singers all the time. And I I decided that the thing that I wanted to do in life was to play in an opera orchestra. And so when I went to New York, I I studied with, you know, members of the Met. And I think that that probably would have been the path that I would have stayed on. I don't know if I would have been successful in it. But I met two people, two friends of mine who were burgeoning opera singers, and they taught me so much. Just being around them, I learned so much about repertoire. I learned so much about the way the voice works, you know, what kinds of voices are appropriate for for what kinds of pieces. And um, it was actually one of these one of these friends who who said to me when I was thinking that maybe I didn't want to be a performer on the horn, said, you know, like you're you're pretty organized and you're like reasonably smart. Have you ever thought about being a manager? And of course I knew nothing about the music business and that got me started on that on that path. And of course, then you're, you're, you're learning all the time. So, um, having basically, basically carte blanche to go to the Met. So I saw everything. I mean, I would go to anything because I just wanted to learn. Um, and then when I left management and went back to the, to, to orchestra world, one of the, um, one of the pieces that made the pivot easy was that I went to an orchestra that performed a lot of vocal music and and performed operas. So that made the transition, first of all, enjoyable, but but more easy for me. And there it was also a, a real learning experience because of course I took lit, you know, orchestra lit in college or whatnot, and I played a number of pieces as a horn player, but you're still not in a professional orchestra. So every week I was learning a new piece or several new pieces. And of course I listen at home and I, I'd like to think I'm a lifelong learner and I'm in just incredibly passionate about music. So I go through these sort of rabbit holes where I'll just be sitting there one day and I'll think, I don't know anything about Inescu. And I'll just, you know, so, okay, great. Let's <laughs> listen to the chamber music and then the symphonies and to, you know, into the operas. Yeah. I, uh, and so when you made that move out of artist management and over to the orchestra side to the San Francisco Symphony, how did it compare? I mean, obviously, as an artist manager, you are invested in your relationships with presenters. They're essential to the work. But your primary relationship is with the artists. Then you go to the orchestra, where maybe it's a little bit of the inverse. Your primary relationship is with the orchestra. But of course, the guest artists that come in, it's a very big part of things. So what was that transition like, or do you find that work to be kind of the same, the two sides of the same coin? I think that artist management and working for a presenting organization like an orchestra are really are two sides of the same coin. And ultimately, these relationships should not be adversarial, right? As a manager, you represent 
an artist. As a presenter of an organization, we represent many artists, but we're essentially doing the same job. And and I think we all have to keep our eye on the health of the industry. And it and for that it it will always require us to to compromise in some ways. I've always found it very um distasteful working with managers who of course they are there to represent the interests of their artist but when they represent the interest of their artist to the detriment of everyone else you know that's 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 a real problem and i and i don't mean just you know charging uh, a specific organization more than they should but you know what that does to the whole fee structure of the of the business and what people expect and the, the long term effect of that similarly an organization like an orchestra using its leverage to pay people I guess the inverse of that is using its leverage to pay people less than they're than they're worth. I mean, just because you can get people for less, is that fair? Like, you, we all need to think about what is fair and right and appropriate. So, I, I never found. I mean, there was a lot to learn when I when I moved to the orchestra side. I didn't really know what an endowment was or how it worked, and um, the budgeting process is you know completely different than. Uh, than than budgeting for you know commission income on on the side of being a manager and it's at least working in artistic it's a it's a much more public role right um i found that as a manager no one wanted to talk to me and that was just fine and then suddenly <laughs> you know you're a you're a programming representative and and uh you know there's some media and you're talking to the board and this and that and the other so it was um for me, I had to sort of grow up very quickly, <laughs> but I enjoyed it very much. So, hmm, just lost my train of thought, but it's going to come back. So, oh yeah, okay. Um, so, talking about these about these two roles, about these jobs. Um, I mean, one thing that I observe as an artist manager is that yes, I travel, yes, I go to performances, um, but it isn't as rigorous as being in the artistic administration department of an orchestra, especially a big orchestra where you're presenting a different program every week or maybe two weeks if you have a more extended project um, and you're in the office for much of the day and you're at the theater many evenings. How do you find the work-life balance to be um, in, in these roles in orchestras. I mean, I feel like a lot of my colleagues, I feel like they're just constantly working and I do wonder like, um, how do you find that to be? Well, we, you know, we present 42 to 43 weeks a year. So it's nonstop. And, uh, in, in my role at the Cleveland orchestra, we, uh, in a, you know, in a normal year, we are touring five to seven weeks a year. And I mean, it's, it's, I mean, the work-life balance is terrible. Um, but this is not a job that one should do if they aren't passionate about the music and the people. And, you know, this is, this is a, a, an interesting moment to reflect on this, to suddenly go from constantly traveling, constant, constantly having performances and rehearsals to suddenly having really nothing 
And I tell you, I, I, I prefer the former. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, it is, it is the, the greatest honor of my life to be able to support the kinds of artists that I do. Um, this incredible orchestra and music director and guest conductors and guest soloists to do what they do. I can't do what they do, but I'm part of the apparatus that gets them on stage. And I watch the joy that they bring and the reflection and the introspection that they bring. And I can't imagine anything I could do in my life with the talents that I have that would touch more people than that. And I heard that you is say a in massive. It. It's just a massive honor. Yeah, and I heard you say in a, in another interview that one of the things that you found most fulfilling about moving to the orchestra side is that you are so immersed in all of the performances, and you know you do the preparatory work, but then you are also there experiencing what all this work is for. Whereas yes. an, as an artist manager, you get to see some of it, but it'd be pretty impossible to see all of it. But in this way, working for an orchestra, you really get to be there for all of these wonderful performances that you've helped to prepare. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's absolutely right. And it's a huge, it's a huge payoff. And listen, I don't want to gloss over this. You know, I've missed birthdays and weddings and there are numerous things that I just can't do. You know, a friend says to me, Oh, in three years, um, you know, my, I'm turning 40 and, uh, we want to plan a trip and we'd like to go here. And I look at the calendar and I say, I'm sorry, I can't go. What do you mean? It's in three years. No, I know what I'm doing on those days. And, you know, I'm going to be with the orchestra and we're in Tokyo and I can't miss it. I'm sorry, not going. That's, yeah, it's hard. It's it's very hard. And, and I'm also not going to say that every day uh, that I have to go to a concert and I have to put on a suit that I'm thrilled to be there. I'm not. But one of the things that I find is on the days where I least want to be there for whatever reason, it's like, I want to sit on my sofa and watch Netflix. I don't want to hear Bruckner. That's always the time where the music just like works its way in and just cracks you open. And, and those are, those are usually the very best experiences that I have, that I have had, (laughs) that I've had in the concert hall. Well, one of the things that this very demanding lifestyle does allow for is a dog. And there were a lot of conditions um, for for you to do this interview. It took a lot of legwork and a lot of demands by you and your handlers. Um, and in fact, I wanted to interview your colleague Ilya, but his list of demands was just so outrageous that uh, I just ended it right away. He's difficult. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but you you do have a dog within this lifestyle. So tell us about your dog. Well, I so I we got a dog um in December of 2019. So we were ahead of the COVID curve in getting a pet. And you know, it's something you know, my husband and I spoke for years about our desire to get to to get a dog and I was pushing for it and he absolutely refused and he said, "I know what's going to happen." We'll get a dog and I will end up having to do everything. And that might be slightly true, but, uh, (laughs) but no, it's, it's, it's been a fascinating experience. I mean, I am not, 
an animal person and or I wouldn't have traditionally said I am. And now it's like I'm way more interested in in dogs than I am in people. And there I don't know there's something very uh, this this must be a a like a little sliver of what happens to someone when they become a parent that you have this little thing that is uh, dependent on you and just brings absolute joy. I mean, and my dog knows when I'm having a bad day. He just, you know, he comes up to my desk and I, I'm obviously working from home at this point. He comes up to my desk and he just looks at me with these eyes and suddenly everything, all the stress just kind of melts away because you've got this little, this little guy that just wants you to take him for a walk. And he's the best. He is the best. What what is his name and what kind of dog is he? His name is Brightly, and he is a whippet. Um, oh, very cool. Yeah, so he's very fast. <laughs> so you always has, have to keep him on leash. And uh, he is living out his retirement. He was a show dog. And so he's living out his retirement uh, with us. I think he's got oh. a pretty good deal. I want his life. That yeah, that's that sounds really nice and very sweet. And our dog too, Cappy, was a rescue, and there is so much satisfaction that comes from taking care of them and giving them a little soft cushion life after their hardships. Yeah, yeah, he's um he's definitely the king of this house. That's all I will say. <laughs> so, uh, one of the other things that that you and I both very much enjoy is uh, cocktails, drinking cocktails, making cocktails. What kind of cocktails have you been? making lately what kind of cocktails have i not been making lately so <laughs> you know i'm kind of a um a, a cool weather i go for the brown uh for the brown stuff and and when it warms up i switch back to you know mostly gin but um lately i have been drinking i've gotten into scotch cocktails mm. so um on my rotation lately has been the rob roy which is a um, sort of a manhattan with scotch Bobby Burns, which is um, a kind of Manhattan base with scotch and um, Benedictine. Is it Benedictine? Yeah, Benedictine, sort of herbaceous. Mm. Um, and um, um, Rusty Compass, those are really good. But I've also, I love Mezcal. I don't really drink tequila, but something about Mezcal is really great. So I discovered um, a sort of Mezcal margarita with, uh, with, with, grapefruit so on the days where it gets really warm here in cleveland during the winter you know like it's above 25 i might uh, <laughs> get one of those and and then there's another one, great one called a firing squad which is mezcal and lime juice and a little grenadine and some bitters that is just perfect at the end of the day what are oh, you drinking fantastic um i too go for the brown during the winter and i feel like um my I'm a little disappointed in myself in terms of how much bandwidth I've had to do actual cocktail making. I feel like that has really fallen off and I'm just now buying bourbon, putting it in a glass um, with a big cube and drinking it. Um, I mean, it's delicious, but it's not very creative. Um, so I feel like that's a lot of what I've been doing lately. I mean, the other thing I always love to go to is a dirty martini um and i will frequently make that but i've i've been very boring during the pandemic in terms of any mixology creativity well you know one of the things the pandemic has allowed at least in my life is um 
instant gratification. So imagine I go to work every day and I work on you know stuff that's going to happen three seasons from now, and it doesn't. There, there is a that's always a little bit difficult. And then you combine that with there are almost no concerts now. So one works very hard and sees um, sees very little um, output from it. And so that's why I think I've been making cocktails and I've been baking and cooking a lot. And there's just something about like you make the effort, you do something creative, you put the love in, it comes out of the oven. It's good. It's bad. Who cares? But you can share it and then you clean up and it's done, right? And that is um, spectacular. And it sort of, you know, you're learning new things and taking risks and I, it's it's been great. I, I will think that is something that I will miss when all of this is over. I I'm doubtful I'll find I'll find the time to do it as much. Right. And I've been I've been thinking about that too about some things. Um, you know, maybe including this podcast, you know, where will I find the time for things um when we do kind of resume a little bit of normalcy. I mean, um I have no idea um when I will release this episode because um, you know, I'm, I'm building this plane as I'm flying it, but I do know that you are about to go into a few weeks of recording with the Cleveland Orchestra. Do you want to talk about what, what you think that will look and feel like? Well, we built a new, uh, a new platform called Adela, uh, which is named after Adela Prentice Hughes, who, uh, founded the orchestra. So we're the only major American orchestra that was founded by a woman. And, uh, Adela Prentice Hughes was a force of nature <laughs> to have founded this orchestra and 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 kept it together and got you know Severance Hall, one of the great concert halls of the world, built during the Depression. Um, so you know all of these recordings are um, at the end of each one. I feel like it's just a miracle that it happens. You know the circumstances are so hard. Uh, you know, testing everybody and social distancing and masking and the the difficulty, you know, the, if you've ever seen the Cleveland Orchestra in normal times, they are like an amoeba, right? They sit very close. They move together. Like it's, it's basically chamber music that they make. Mm-hmm. Now put six feet and a mask <laughs> uh, into that, into that, um, into that mix. And frequently, you know, it's very difficult for them to hear each other now and whatnot and you have a camera in your face and a microphone. It's just, it's completely different from what we normally do. And yet watching them rise to the occasion. Um, and of course, all of this happens because there's just a deep love for the music and a, and a, and a deep need to share. And I think we all feel that even more as we are at home and we're, you know, increasingly isolated. So every week feels special and feels, um, I suppose like a unicorn in and of itself. And I, you know, if you, if you have time, uh, check it out at adela.live, but I think the performances are beautiful. The record, the audio recording is just stunning and also just getting to see this beautiful hall and, and those musicians. It's, it's absolutely worth it. Well, everything that Cleveland orchestra does is at a super high level. And, um, I know that those performances are so beautiful. And I hope that 
before too long, there are live performances again in Severance Hall that we can all enjoy and that I can come to Cleveland and we can have a firing squad uh, together. (laughs) But until then, Mark, I so appreciate you joining me on the Fletchcast. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you for having me. It was really my pleasure. Man, that was a great conversation with Mark. And don't sleep on Cleveland, guys. That seriously is such an awesome town. If you go there, hit up Great Lakes Brewing, Rising Star Coffee. There are so many great restaurants. It's a great place to be. So before we go, I need to share with you a discovery that I recently made. It's come to my attention that my live journal is still out there on the internet. I don't know if you guys know what LiveJournal is or if you had a live journal, but it was a self-blog site that was basically one of the early ones when the internet was still full of innocence and whimsy. My live journal was written during the first few months of my freshman year of college, which is a crazy time to look back on as a 35, almost 36-year-old. Obviously, I was in emotional upheaval and turmoil over the transition from high school to college, and it's kind of embarrassing how much I was putting out in a completely public forum. I talked about girls that I was crushing on, and actually, I think it was cl- it's clear that I was kind of girl crazy. <laughs> and I also talked openly and freely about my friend's flaws and failures. And any time I took a dig at a friend, I would follow it up with, so-and-so might read this, and sorry, but you know it's true. I mean, I can't imagine doing anything like that on Facebook or the platforms I use these days. And yet, it's all there on LiveJournal. The other thing that's totally crazy to read is that on like a random Tuesday or Wednesday night, I was staying up until like 5 or 6 a.m. And I was doing that like multiple nights during the week. No wonder I was missing my 8 a.m. classes. I mean, the punishment I was putting on that 18-year-old body. (laughs) So to protect whatever dignity I have left, I'm obviously going to closely guard the location of the journal, uh, but I am going to share a feature from it with you. On each post, there was a spot where you could pick the current song you were listening to, like what your mood was and stuff. And I've got some real musical gems in there. Um, There's some real obscurity, but there's some good stuff. Uh, And from time to time, I think I'm going to pick one as our play out music. So we'll start that today. This is from the band Yellow Card, uh, October Nights. And this is the, the song that was my mood in December 2003. Thank you guys for listening. It means a lot. Be well, and I will see you for the next Mental Staycation with the Fletchcast. Cast.